Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, I discuss a couple of exorcisms that ended in murder from Osset, England and Brookfield, Connecticut. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Season 7. And yes, tonight we're going to talk about some exorcisms, both of which uh, end in tragedy. I didn't plan it really that way. I just wanted to do... uh, Really what I wanted to do was talk about uh, the Brookfield, Connecticut exorcism, the Arnie Johnson exorcism, which may sound familiar because it is... Uh, the basis for the third Conjuring movie. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I really wanted to dig into that story because there's a lot of stuff that they don't talk about in that. And I think I know why. Once again, all of that will be revealed later. And then so I looked for another one and found a much more uh, gruesome story. I'm going to put that out there right now when we get to the end of the Michael Taylor exorcism, which I use big quotation marks around, uh, it gets it gets bad. So that I'm putting that trigger warning right here in front. Three twenty six, minute three minutes and twenty six seconds in. You've got it. There it is, and that is that's it. That's the stories that we have on the docket for tonight. 
the Michael Taylor exorcism over in Austin, England. And we're going to talk about Arnie Johnson in Brookfield, Connecticut. But before we get into it, I just want to hit up the social medias and all of that real quick here at the beginning of the episode. If uh, you've been listening to the show and you're enjoying the show and you want to follow me on social media and uh, commune with me there, I am on Twitter, most active on Twitter, at STScast. I am on Facebook at STScast.fb and Instagram at STScast.gram. And for now, that's where you can find me out there in the, the ether of the internet. But all that said, all that out of the way, let's get on with tonight's topics. Hello. Do you like werewolves? Ghosts? How about weird legends, folklore? Or is witchcraft your thing? Then join us on Charles Christian's Weird Tales radio show every Thursday. We're on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, YouTube, and at weirdtalesradio.com. Before we get into tonight's topics, I want to take a minute and let you know that there is so much more small town secrets to enjoy. Check out the Patreon. There are one, two, and three dollar tiers of support with stuff like a shout out on the main show, exclusive buttons and stickers, MP3s to the music I create, also an ad slash promo free version of the main show as well as STS Backroads, the Patreon-only podcast that comes out in the off weeks, which means you'll get content every week, all in your own RSS feed. There is all of this and more. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash stscast or stscast.com and click on the support tab. And now, on with tonight's episode. The town of Osset has a population of around 21,000. It's part of the West Riding Ring of Yorkshire. Some might remember it for the bombs that accidentally dropped on it during World War II, but most remember it for the horrifying crimes of Michael Taylor. In late 1974, Michael Taylor, 31 at the time, his wife Christine and their five children lived in Osset. He worked as a butcher, but was plagued with chronic back pain. The constant pain started causing him ever-increasing bouts of depression. His depression and his pain became worse and worse, and Michael and Christine didn't really know what to do about it. The family itself was uh, not religious in any way, but they lived in a pretty Anglican Protestant town. It was their next-door neighbor, actually, Barbara Wardman, who suggested that the couple join a small Christian fellowship group that she belonged to. And uh, keep that name in mind, it won't be the last that we hear of it. This group had no official name. They weren't like, they were, you know, they didn't have a church or anything. They just kind of got together and, and did stuff. And they were led by, at the time, 21-year-old Mary Robinson. The group would meet at members' houses. And as the story goes, upon the Taylors' first meeting, Mary began walking towards the members looking for someone in need. She was walking right towards Michael. And in response, Michael got up and started walking towards her. However, Mary suddenly stopped at an elderly woman who was uh, sad and in tears. Her name was Mavis Smith. Mary took Mavis's hands and began to speak in tongues at her. What was Michael's response to all of this? He fell to his knees and also began speaking in tongues. So here you are, uh, not a religious person in any way. Like, I don't think they were like, you know, anti-religious. I don't think they were against it. It just wasn't kind of on their radar. And 
almost like a flip a flip is I do that all the time almost like a switch is flipped in him and here he goes speaking in tongues right off the bat first meeting first interaction that first meeting must have had quite the impression on the tailors and after that they started attending these get-togethers on the regular many times offering up their own home as a meeting place and it would be at the tailor's home some weeks later that the group would perform an exorcism or a uh, deliverance as it is known in the protestant faith and uh, this involved a lot of speaking in tongues as we've mentioned before and uh, laying of hands on on people uh in this case mavis uh, after some time there seemed to be no change in Mavis's behavior, and the group simply stopped. They gave up and just moved on to the rest of the meeting, leaving Mavis alone to deal with all that was happening and all that was going on. After this failed deliverance, Christine started pulling just a little bit away from the group, but Michael did not. It would seem, though, he may have had more of an interest in Mary than the group itself. He started spending a lot of time with her. The two were known to spend hours alone staring at one another, making the sign of the cross over and over and over. And over time, Christine became very weary of all of the time that Michael was spending with Mary. And finally, at one of these group meetings, again, held at the tailor's home, she confronted both of them in front of everybody, in front of the whole group. Christine told them that they needed to go upstairs, uh, get some time alone, and figure it out. Which they did. While upstairs, things, I don't think, went the way that Michael may have hoped they were going to go. Instead of Mary reciprocating his feelings, she told Michael that he needed to go back to his loving wife. They went back downstairs, but it was apparent that Michael's mood had changed. He was now quiet and withdrawn. And then suddenly, later in the night, he lashed out at Marie. He claims he was taken over by an evil force and doesn't remember... Once again, speaking in tongues at Mary and then assaulting her. I believe he slapped her across the face. I'm not sure. And after this, the police were called, but no charges were filed. It would be Mavis Smith who told him the day after the incident that it was the devil and not him that was the cause of all of this. This seemed to be a breaking point for Michael. He destroyed all of the religious artifacts and things that he now owned around his home, save for one wooden cross that he wore around his neck, and then started telling people around town that he was seeing the devil himself. Eventually, all of this got back to the local reverend of St. Peter's Church there in town. Uh, his name was Peter Vincent. So, Peter Vincent of St. Peter's. Uh, he got word of Michael's troubles. When he visited the tailors, he found out that Michael had now flipped entirely on Marie, now claiming that she was nothing more than a Satanist, and this was all due to demons she herself had sent after Michael, a claim that Vincent believed all of. The tailors now weary of all his unwanted attention, just they wanted to get away for a little bit. But, once again, it would be Barbara Wardman, the next-door neighbor, who convinced them to attend a meeting with Peter Vincent and uh, some other officials from the church. So now, we're out of the group. Uh, they, wanted to just, they wanted to just get away for the weekend, and uh, I don't know what they were doing. I have a feeling that they were going to go hang out with a couple of friends because later, we're going to get into it here a little bit, 
all five of their children were out of the house when all of what happened happened. So I'm going to assume, I don't know for sure, and I could find it, that they decided to stay, we'll go to this meeting, we'll appease them, whatever. Uh, but we're going to send the kids off to uh, enjoy the weekend that we had planned. That's what I'm going with, but that's a speculation on my part. When the Taylors walked into that church on October 5th, they were greeted with pretty much a surprise exorcism, a surprise deliverance, if you will. And Michael's reaction to this was uh, to throw hot tea in the reverend's face, uh, punch him in the face, and he also, sadly, kicked the reverend's cat. Michael was restrained by the others who attended, and he was tied up and locked in an office. Then, starting at midnight, and over the course of eight hours, they proceeded to exercise, quotation marks, 40 demons from Michael. A few things about what they did at this exorcism. Uh, I'm sure there was probably some speaking in tongues. I'm sure there was a lot of laying on hands. But they also did some things like shove crosses in his mouth. And uh, that wooden cross that he had kept, one of the only things that he didn't destroy, they ended up burning that because they claimed that it had been tainted by these demons. But eight hours and uh, 40 demons later, daylight broke, and the exhausted team let the tailors go home, saying that this wasn't over yet, and they still had three demons to contend with. And uh, they were these demons were associated with insanity, anger, and murder. Michael and Christine returned to an empty home that morning, October 6th. Like I said, all the children had been sent to a friend's house. And no one knows entirely what happened that morning, or even how the events unfolded, like the chronological order of any of it. But hours later, Michael would be seen wandering the streets naked, covered in what many witnesses thought was red paint. When the police found him, he was cowering in a fetal position covered in not red paint, but blood. Sometime after the exorcism, Michael had attacked his wife, Christine, in a brutal manner. He had clawed her face with his bare hands, ripping pieces of skin and flesh from it as well as gouging out her eyes, and he ended up ripping out her tongue. He then proceeded to kill the family poodle in much the same manner. After the murder is when he wandered outside, screaming, it's the blood of Satan, over and over again. At the trial, Michael Taylor would be found not guilty by reason of insanity and sentenced to Broadmoor Hospital. He would spend two years there and then two years at another hospital before being released. He was released so early because it was thought that his mental break was temporary and was caused by hyperventilation during the exorcism and a hysterical pseudo-psychosis. So, he was fully released back into society. He was put back in psychiatric treatment in 2005 after he was arrested for sexually assaulting a teenage girl. So, yes, it is a gruesome story. It is a tragic story. Uh, and I don't really... Yes, an exorcism occurred, but was this possession was any of this necessary uh no i don't think so i think this is just a case of someone who had a very bad mental break and it was never handled properly and uh ever at all all the way up until 2005 when he just went right back into it and they like he was during that time before he got arrested again it was said that he was starting to exhibit 
that same type of behavior. So this tragically is just what I think a lot of exorcisms are, is that it is just people trying to deal with a mental illness in the wrong way. Yeah, maybe if you're devout enough to a religion, you can possibly snap somebody out of it by doing this. But I think more than not, especially in this case, when you take someone who was not religious in any way, shape, or form, and then you just you just smash them right into it, uh, and then it just gets turned up to 11. I mean, this all happened in, like, the space of two months. Like, all of these meetings and this exorcism and that exorcism and the murder. It was all, like, a span of two months. Two or, you know, give or take. So it really wasn't that long that he went from, I mean, just 0 to 11, like I said, so quickly. But what about, like, everybody else in the story, right? Mary Robinson just kind of faded off into obscurity. Never really heard from her again. I mean, I don't think... I think she might have testified and stuff, but nothing really happened to her. And of and uh, what about Peter Vincent there, the, the reverend that actually instigated all of this? Uh, uh, he got a promotion. He uh, ended up becoming a vicar and uh, got off scot-free in the end, which to me uh, doesn't seem right. But, like, I guess when someone is found not guilty by reason of insanity... You can't really do too much to everyone else involved. But, I don't know, that doesn't sit right with me. I don't think it sits right with a lot of other people either. But that is the story of the Michael Taylor exorcism. Huge uh, quotation marks there under exorcism. One thing did come of this, though. After this whole terrible ordeal, the Anglican Church made uh, it much harder for deliverances, exorcisms, to be performed. They had stricter rules for it. They required stronger evidence. A lot of quotation marks I'm making with my fingers in this episode for exorcisms. So, hey, that's something, I guess. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Brookfield is a small Connecticut town that rests within the foothills of the Berkshire Mountains in the southwest corner of the state. In the 70s and the 80s, the little town saw a population swell as many from the nearby larger cities started moving out of said cities. This is what Arnie Johnson and Deborah Glatzel did. Little did they know what was to come. The couple 
had moved out to Brookfield in 1980. Very young couple. I think Arnie was like 18 at the time. They had found a place owned by Alan Bono. Arnie, at the time, worked for the Wright Tree Service, and Debbie worked at a dog kennel, which was also owned by Alan Bono. Strange things started almost the instant the couple stepped foot onto their rental property. The couple was joined by Debbie's younger brother, David, who was 11 at the time. He was tasked with cleaning up the master bedroom. Upon entering the bedroom, he noticed that a waterbed had been left behind by the former tenants. All three found this strange, but there wasn't much they could do about it at the moment, and so David started sweeping. Moments later, Arnie and Debbie watched as David ran, screaming, out of the house. Outside, he told them that an old man had attacked him, and then he refused to go back inside. The two chalked it up to him being a kid and uh, all of a sudden now not wanting to help clean. But David wouldn't let up about the old man. Even when the couple got back to Debbie's mother's house, which is where they were staying while they did all the moving, he kept going on about visions of the old man. He told everyone that he saw an animal scratching at the rental property's door trying to get at the old man and uh, that the man didn't want them there. Having had enough of David's antics, Debbie asked for a sign of this old man, knowing that nothing would happen. That's not what she got. Instead, Debbie, Arnie, and Judy felt the house shake. This rattled them just a little bit. The next day, the couple returned to the rental home and discovered something they hadn't noticed the day before. There were scratches on the front door that appeared to be from some sort of animal. This, coupled with the house shaking and everything that had happened to David, suddenly made them take recourse. They decided that they no longer wanted the property. The only wrinkle in this was that Arnie's mother was supposed to move in with them. This, of course, didn't set well with her. They could stay at Judy's house however long they needed, but there wasn't enough room and Arnie's mother had nowhere to go. She decided that she would be staying at the rental by herself. David's issues were not over, not by a long shot. He continued having visions of the old man, telling his family that he appeared as a man during the day, but at night was some sort of beast. After that second day, David seemed to brighten up a little bit. Arnie, Debbie, Judy, and David had spent the whole day out and away from any of the houses, any of the homes there, the rental one or Judy's. But as the day came to a close, he didn't want to enter Judy's house, saying the old man was in there. It would be a rough night for the members of the household. Later that night, they were all awoken by David screaming in his bedroom. Then, in front of everyone, David was thrown around his room and assaulted, beaten by an unseen force. They wasted no time. The next day, Judy and Debbie visited their priest. He instructed them that he would start the ball rolling on an investigation for an exorcism. And in the meantime, he gave them some candles and holy water in order to cleanse the house. This did nothing really but make it worse. David was now experiencing convulsions and seizures, and at times speaking in a voice that was not his. He also seemed to have sort of bouts of ESP and clairvoyance from here to there. After hearing this, the priest came to the home to bless it himself. After blessing the home, he decided to contact, of course, Ed and Lorraine Warren on the family's behalf. The Warrens' first meeting with David was an interesting one. David told them on first glance that he knew who they were, 
and uh, even was able to tell them things that he should not have known. For example, Ed had tripped on the porch stairs when they got to the home, and David knew it. At the time, David was inside in the kitchen and had not seen this happen, apparently. Ed would go on to ask what they had all started calling the Beast a series of questions in order to provoke the entity in the showing itself. And once again, the house shook. The Warrens said that they would push for an exorcism, but would opt for a minor rite of exorcism as it would be faster. And that's something I didn't know. I didn't know that you could get like an express exorcism, like a discount one. I didn't know that was a thing. In the meantime, David would slip further and further down the spiral. One night, in a sudden fit of anger, Arnie demanded that the entity leave the boy and enter him. Oddly enough, after this, David seemed okay for a time. Now, Arnie would start to experience strange things. One night, shortly after making his declaration, he hopped into his car to go run a few errands. The car started, but the engine immediately started racing, as if someone was just holding down the gas pedal. Still in park, but just, you know. Arnie had no control over the car. He couldn't open the doors, and then suddenly, the headlights went on. According to Arnie, in front of the car was some sort of dark entity, a demon. But I'm going to say entity pretty much from here on out. It pointed upwards, and at that moment, the car sped out into the street before coming to a sudden stop. This time, it would be Arnie and Debbie who would go and visit an actual exorcist. He would tell them openly challenging the entity like that uh, was not the greatest idea in the world, and in an attempt to protect Arnie, he gave him a blessed crucifix necklace. When they got back to Judy's that night, David saw the necklace and proceeded to tell them everything that they had been up to for that whole day. Names, all of it. Then, somehow, the necklace leaped off of Arnie's neck. After this kind of fit of possession, David seemed to have come back and was able to tell everyone that the beast had come from a well. A well on the rental property. One that no one knew about. No one had seen a well since they'd been out there. But armed with this information, Arnie and Debbie went back to search their rental property. And the first thing they noticed upon entering was that the house was empty. It seemed as if Arnie's mother had finally decided to get out of there. And that I would love to hear what she has to say about all this. Uh, that's kind of it. She moves in, she's in there, she's fine, and then she's just gone. And then I, you know, I couldn't find anything else like what happened to her. Uh, very strange on that end, but maybe she just, I mean, I don't think she's talking. Yeah, I don't think, maybe. I don't think she wants anything to do with all of this. While Debbie remained in the house, Arnie searched the wooded area uh, past the backyard and did eventually find an old well. And, as well, the same dark entity that he had seen that night in front of his car. Inside, Debbie had made a discovery of her own. She found the crucifix on the floor. Soon after, Arnie entered the home, and he seemed in a daze and would not respond to Debbie until she slapped him out of it. He claims to this day that he had no memory of what transpired in that time. It would also seem that the beast was not done with David. Sometime after the discovery of the well, David attempted to attack Arnie with a knife. Arnie was unharmed, and David had no memory of the event, but he did go on to tell the family that more demons were coming to take him. Then finally, five weeks into this whole ordeal, the minor rite of exorcism was performed at Judy's home. Ed and Lorraine Warren were there, and I want to say like four or five Catholic priests were also there performing the exorcism. 
It was a stressful ordeal for all involved, one that went on for hours. And in the end, however, it was claimed, once again, that over 40 demons had been exercised from the boy. And that's the end of the story, right? No, actually, it is not. Months after the exorcism, on February 16th of 1981, Arnie called in sick to work in order to join Debbie and some others, including their landlord, Alan Bono, for just kind of a day, you know, a day out. They went to eat at a local bar and then went back to the kennel. Bono, over time, I don't know if it's Bono or Bono, I don't know how you want to say it, became drunk and belligerent. Eventually, he grabbed Debbie and would not let her go. This, of course, agitated Arnie. And Arnie attacked Bono, Bono with a pocket knife, sporting a five-inch blade, and stabbed him several times. Arnie would be arrested hours later, some two miles away from where the murder had happened. And during his trial, Arnie and his lawyer tried to use the now infamous the devil made me do it defense, claiming that at the time he had been behaving much like David had on and off for months before the murder. He had, as he claimed, no memory of the whole incident and that he had been growling like some sort of feral animal when he stabbed Bono. However, in the end, the judge would not permit this defense to go before the court. Arnie's lawyer decided they had to go with a self-defense argument. And actually, none of this possession defense, this devil-made-me-do-it defense, was ever really heard in court. Arnie would be convicted of first-degree manslaughter, and he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years, but was released after only five years due to good behavior. And, uh, there you go. I want to talk about a couple of things. A few things first. First, uh, the weirdness. So, this of course is the tantalizing story that has been fed to us all over the years. A book called uh, The Devil in Connecticut was written by uh, Gerald Brittle with, of course, the help of the Warrens. And they, you know, of course that came out. It's just like the Amityville thing. That came out and they probably got a bunch of money off of it. Uh, you know, they said that, oh, we did this and we gave the family a bunch of money for court fees and stuff. The family got like two G's. They got like two grand out of this. And since then, it was republished in 2006. And uh, Carl, which we didn't talk about, Carl is David's brother. David Glatzel's brother, Carl. And so it would be, it would also be Debbie's brother. Carl and David, now older, uh, sued the authors of the book and said that, this is libel. This didn't happen. They exploited David. Uh, you know, he had mental illness and all of this. And this is all just a story. They made up to sell some books. And then to add even more fuel to that, the Catholic Church has come out and said, hey, no exorcism was ever performed because the family would not submit to the psychiatric tests that were needed to help disprove or prove that an exorcism was required but the warrens always stood behind their story the you know arnie and debbie who ended up they didn't marry after he got out also stuck by that story but then i think if you've if if you made all of this hubbub about like i'm going to say the devil made me do it and that's going to be my defense even though it didn't make it the court everybody damn well knew about it you can't back off of it later You've really gotta you've really gotta hold that story strong. And so I told you all of that to tell you this. I think the reason why, because I I of course watched the Conjuring 3 when it came out. It was on HBO for a while, you know, when it came out. And I've seen all of them. And I think the first one is great because it is just a story about the Perrin family and the haunting, and the Warrens are there and their characters because their Warrens were there. And then the second one. It's a watchable movie, but the Warren's involvement, which really wasn't much, and we've done an episode on the Infell Poltergeist as well. It's episode 502, if you, if anyone needs to go back and wants to listen to that. 
And, uh, but like they weren't, you know, so that was kind of weird. Still a watchable movie. You just kind of have to ignore that the Warrens didn't really do anything. In it. And this one to me was very much like, we're just going to really focus on Ed and Lorraine and make them like exorcist superheroes. Cause they don't really do anything with David's story at all. Like the movie starts, not really spoilers, but it, it starts off after his exorcism and really deals with everything that happened with Arnie. And I think the reason for that is because they knew that David and Carl, his brother, weren't too keen on that story. So I think they really backed off of that for a little bit. But then it, the other kind of funny thing about it is I watched an episode of an old uh, History Channel show called A Haunting, which Arnie and Debbie were on, and they talked about a lot of the stuff that happened with David. And that episode is very funny. Because it stops right after the exorcism. It doesn't go into anything that happened with Arnie's manslaughter case and the trial and that at all. It's not even mentioned in that episode. So if you if you take if you take the Conjuring 3 and you take the episode of The Haunting, season two, episode six, by the way, came out in 2006 and kind of put them together, you can get the whole story, quote unquote. So there's a lot to chew on there. There is a lot to be like, do I believe this person? Do I believe that person? Do I believe in exorcism? Do I believe in exorcism? I don't think so much that I do. I will give what I think kind of goes on in a lot of these. And really what I think it is, is just, it is the person's mental state. And it is something, you know, people go in there and they fool with it in a way that they shouldn't. That's why, I mean, the Catholic Church has made it so hard for exorcisms to be performed. That's why they needed his, they, they, that's why they needed to psychiatrically test David. Because if the test came back that, hey, he's schizophrenic or whatever, then they would be like, nope, we don't need to do this, you know. And uh, but then maybe if you want to look at the more paranormally side of it, and of course, how I'm kind of coming from all of this, that is that it's all just a mass of, psychical energy, right? Like if you get enough people together that believe that this is going on, can they manifest all of this? Can they manifest the demons? Can they manifest the activity? And if that is true, can an exorcism demanifest it all? The belief in exorcism. That's kind of where I'm at. If it turns out to be like a paranormal thing, and I'm sure that there are some very strange cases out there that have some strange evidence. But I think most of it is this is a person who has some sort of mental illness and it need, needed to be dealt with properly. It needed to be dealt with doctors and whatnot. But I'm sure there are a few outliers out there. But all that being said, I'll leave it up to you guys to decide for yourselves if you think the devil indeed made him do it. And uh, there we go. Those are our topics for tonight. We're going to take a little intermission like we always do. We're going to come back. I got a couple news stories and a small town secret to share for the other half of episode 7.02 here.
Okay, our first local headline for this episode is from WBONTV.com. This is out of Kentucky, I believe. And the headline reads, Man shoots gun at a local hotel after seeing aliens. And this is written by Marissa Hampel. Richmond police report that a bizarre shots fired call led to multiple charges for a Waco man, according to the RPD on September 11th. And that is Waco, Kentucky. It's right next to Richmond, Kentucky, not Waco, Texas. And this was early in the morning. They responded to a local hotel on Keeneland Drive in reference to a report of gunfire. Officers quickly arrived and discovered shots were being fired from a hotel window. Officers worked to get patrons out of the hotel and secured them in a safe location nearby, according to police. The Richmond Police Emergency Response Unit was called on the scene and made contact with a male inside the room who was later identified as 55-year-old Samuel Riddle of Waco. Police continue. They learned that Riddle occupied the room with a female who secured herself in the bathroom until police safely got her out. Riddle was eventually taken into custody and later interviewed by detectives where he told police he observed aliens in the parking lot and was shooting at them. Detectives discovered Riddle was, was a convicted felon and was in possession of two handguns and a semi-automatic rifle. Riddle was logged into the Madison County Detention Center and charged with the following four counts of wanton endangerment in the first degree with a police officer, two counts of wanton endangerment, first degree, two counts of criminal mischief, first degree, court of criminal mischief, second degree, possession of a handgun by a convicted felon, one, one count, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Police added there were no injuries reported after the incident. The release adds that it was later discovered several bullets had struck vehicles in the parking lot and one had entered an adjacent occupied room. And that's it. It's a really short story, but uh, you can check it out. There is a mugshot there of him. He looks exactly like you suspect him to look. And uh, something tells me uh, there weren't aliens. I don't think he was firing at aliens. I think uh, a little something else. Well, something else was going on there. And our next story, our last story, comes from Coast to Coast uh, by Tim Banal. And uh, another Loch Ness sighting, Loch Ness monster spotted on sonar. The latest potential Loch Ness monster sighting comes by the way of a tourist who reported a rare instance wherein the legendary creature may have been spotted on sonar. The intriguing case reportedly occurred on August 26th as Benjamin Scanlon and his family were vacationing at the iconic Scottish site. Much like many tourists who visited the famed location, they decided to go out onto the water via a popular cruise ship billed as the Nessie Hunter. It would seem that the name of the vessel lived up to its billing. While cruising along Loch Ness, Scanlon was stunned to see that the sonar of the ship picked up a peculiar anomaly in the water. Fortunately, he was able to snap a picture, which uh, can be seen below. Actually, it's seen up top of the monitor that displayed the puzzling return. The captain of the Nessie Hunter, who is presumably well-versed in explaining sonar images, examining, I'm sorry, sonar images, indicated to Scanlon that the object appeared to be around 10 to 13 feet in length and was lurking at a depth of around 65 feet. Scanlon's story is particularly unique as nearly all Nessie sightings come from either someone standing on the shore or the site of individuals watching the Loch Ness webcam in their home. That said, last year saw two sonar cases from Loch Ness, so such events are not entirely unheard of in recent times. The late August sonar report from Scanlon was subsequently accepted by the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register as the fifth on-site case this year. The website also accepted yet another potential webcam sighting from Ian O'Fagan, who has amassed a slew of such cases over the years simply by diligently watching the live stream for anomalies. These two reports bring this year's total 
number of Nessie sightings both on-site and online to 13, which matches the count for all of 2020. Considering that there's still nearly four months left in 2021, it's a safe bet that last year's total will wind up being surpassed, though it may not reach the high water mark set in 2019, which was this century's best year for sightings with a whopping 18 reports. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And tonight on Your Small Town Secrets, I have just one from good old Reddit. But it's a shorty, but a goodie. I like it. This is from user Herschel Squirt. And uh, this is their story. This happened in Calvary's Big Trees National Park in the Sierra Nevada Mountains on California of California on Highway 4, which I feel like I've driven down before, but I can't quite remember. There is an overlook that affords a vista of, and I'm not 100% sure how to say this. I'm not sure if it's the Stanislaus River Valley. That sounds, that sounds good. We'll go with that. Uh, for those familiar with the park, it's where Oak Tree Parkway turns into Big Trees Parkway as you drive from the park entrance and head down into the valley towards the campgrounds. My father, my little sister, and myself were all in my father's truck headed up the hill away from the campgrounds, driving towards the park entrance with the intention of going shopping in nearby Arnold. As we came up to this overlook, I saw at least four or five cars parked on either side of the road. There were a good number of people standing around and looking into the valley at something. The next thing I know, I was gradually coming consciousness from some sort of stupor or hypnotic state. It was like gradually awaking from an anesthetic. I was sitting straight up and my eyes were open. I looked around the cab of the truck. My dad was driving and my sister was sitting there. Both were in kind of a trance state, not saying anything. After about a minute, they also started moving around like normal and talking. We had exited the park and had driven down Highway 4 almost to Arnold, a distance of about six miles, if I remember correctly. Half an hour to 45 minutes was missing. And I forgot to mention, uh, this user was 12 years old at the time, and... Yeah, missing time uh, and no kind of explanation about it. Like, even if you're kind of up in the mountains and it's hilly, it doesn't take half an hour to 45 minutes to go six miles. And I don't know, I just, this, this, I always like a good missing time story. And just the, the part where everyone just kind of turns back on, you know, they're in this weird trance and a daze. And then all of a sudden, oh, okay, we're fine. And we're just going to, carry on like normal like they had been turned off and turned back on was very intriguing to me so that is why i wanted to share that story so thank you herschel squirt for uh, putting on reddit and letting me share it on the show and that is a wrap in the can if you will for episode two of season seven if you have a small town secret to share a story to share a bigfoot a ghost a true crime thing whatever there are a lot of ways to get it onto the show. The best way, the quickest way, is to go to uh, stscast.com. Uh, down at the bottom of the main page there, there's an email form that you can fill out that will send it right to me. You can also uh, hit me up on any of the social medias that I uh, 
gave you at the beginning of the show there. Those are also at the bottom of the page. You can find links to all of that and more there. Also on that main page, you can check out show notes and pictures for all of the episodes that I've ever done for this show, as well as links to merch and other ways you can support the show, such as the Patreon. If you would like to help out the show in a non-financial way, then uh, the best thing to do, two best things really, is to leave a rating and or review on your podcast app of choice, especially if it's iTunes. That's uh, that's the one that really drives it forward. And uh, just really tell a friend. Uh, if one person gets one more person to listen to the show, then the audience automatically doubles just like that. That's two finger snaps in one episode, by the way. So I just want to take a second and thank all of you for listening and supporting the show and continuing to do so. It means the world to me, and I can't thank you enough. If you are on the Patreon or plan on joining the Patreon, this is what I have planned for the next Backroads episode. I think it's kind of a possession-y type of story, but very different. I have wanted to try to find an excuse to kind of dig in the story for a while, and I'm going to make our work here. We're going to talk about author Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, writer of such things as uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which you might know better as Blade Runner, you know, and he also did Total Recall, a bunch of stuff that uh, you probably know, but don't know that you know, unless you're like a Philip K. Dick fan. But I want to get into kind of the story behind all of that. He had kind of a relationship there near the end, he claimed, with some sort of intelligence that was feeding him information. So not really like a possession, quote-unquote. And there's no exorcism involved, but maybe maybe a little bit and maybe something else. Uh, we'll dig into it. We'll get into it more on the Backroads episode. Until then, thank you for listening once again. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, take care of yourself, take care of the person next to you. And remember, every town has a secret. What is yours?